Hey everybody, we're back and we're talking about the Mandaeans. So uh, we've had a very interesting conversation with Dr. James McGrath from Butler University. And uh, we're going to continue that now. And joining me to do, to do that is Jonathan Stewart. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Father Tony. Yes, and hello, Chelmsford. I beat you to <laughs> it this time. <laughs> and hello, Dr. James McGrath from Butler University. Hi, thanks for having me here. <laughs> thanks for coming. So uh, we talked a little bit in the video show. Well, we talked a lot in the video show about the Mandaeans. In fact, we talked exclusively about the Mandaeans in the video show. We're going to do it again. So uh, can you give our viewers a refresher on who the Mandaeans are? The Mandaeans are the last surviving Gnostic group from ancient times. Right? So there are modern Gnostic groups, obviously, uh, but this is a group that survived from... Uh, the third century, if not earlier, down to the present day, uh, historically in the region of Mesopotamia, and nowadays you can find them um, all over the world in a diaspora, uh, usually in very small communities, and you can find them online, and you can find them on places like YouTube. Uh, you used to have to go to very isolated parts of the world to see a Mandean baptism. Baptism is one of their key rituals. Nowadays, you can go on YouTube, type in Mandian baptism, and see this uh, bit of history, hmm. bit of living history, uh, right there. And so I, I just love the technology and the way it's uh, not just uh, made the world a smaller place, but uh, brought actual living Gnostic traditions that have been neglected by the public, and sometimes even by scholars, to uh, a wider audience, if you just know which keywords to type in on YouTube. <laughs> Well, that's fascinating. I know what I'm doing when I get home. <coughs> so uh, you mentioned that uh, sometimes scholars neglect uh, the Mandaeans. We've had a couple of scholars on here recently who actually have very similar stories about their own areas of study. Uh, is, is Mandaeism kind of a, not exactly a taboo subject, but like a, a subject that scholars are discouraged from, uh, from approaching? Uh, well, I do know of one instance of someone being discouraged by a supervisor because the the language was felt to be too difficult to obscure. Oh. Uh, their sacred texts are in a dialect of Aramaic, which is not that different in some ways from uh, Jewish uh, Babylonian Aramaic, like the language of the Talmud and other Jewish texts. But it is still distinctive. It is a dialect. Uh, it's written in a different script, and uh, it's hard to believe that sometimes somebody will say, yeah, Coptic would be easier, uh, <laughs> you know, and of course it depends on what your background is, but I think, I think you've hit on something there. Uh, there's been a lot of interest in the Mandaeans when people thought they could tell us something about subjects that they as researchers were more interested in. So, for instance, as possible background to the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And once it becomes clear that the Mandaeans are not in any kind of straightforward way the background to, say, the Gospel of John, then sometimes people have lost interest. Mm -hmm. And that's unfortunate because the Mandaeans deserve interest as a tradition in their own right, as part of the history of religion, history of the phenomenon of Gnosticism, and not just in terms of what they can tell us about others. Yeah, I, and I think we definitely agree. Um, you know, we, we were talking to uh, um, uh, Jonathan, what was his name last week? Uh, uh, Dr. Tim Hedris. That's right. And, and he was telling us how the, uh, the study of the Manichaeans have a, has a very similar um, kind of, uh, you know, nobody really cares. It's not a really a worthwhile avenue of study because it doesn't directly relate to the New Testament in any way. And so I hope that we in some small part can <laughs> kind of get the word out there for these kind of smaller religious traditions that don't get a lot of study. Uh, because we like them and we're interested. So <laughs> there's got to be yeah, more people, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm and sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Oh, no, not at all. I just, one of the things I often say is that, you know, I think the Mandians are almost at a disadvantage because uh, scholars have known about them for a long time. Mm -hmm. And... In this day and age, if someone were to find Gnostic texts, I mean, that, that would make headlines anyway because there's an interest, but Gnostic texts in a dialect of Aramaic, 
which mention John the Baptist, which mention Jesus, which like John the Baptist, which don't like Jesus. Mm -hmm. I, this would be, I mean, this would be headline news around the world. Sure. And if they discover yeah, that discover. alongside these texts, they actually have people still practicing this religion, so that you can observe what the rituals look like and not just read about them in the texts. Mm. This would be headline news, and so it's, in a sense, it's it's disappointing that you know the Mandeans kind of peaked too soon, <laughs> and. As a result, you know, there's there's less interest now than than really they deserve. I would have to say. Mm. Is it that? Um, well, well, what is the difference between, say, a historical or a literary study of Mandaism and kind of a current day, uh, you know, like what's the word I'm looking for? Anthropological study, maybe, of the Mandaeans. Yeah, and th they're all pieces of the puzzle in a sense. Uh, one of the, the key works, which um, I'd recommend to your viewers if they're interested in finding out about the Mandeans, um, it's rather dated in a sense, but on the other hand, Mandean studies has not seen a lot of activity, and so it's still extremely useful. But one of the most important works on the Mandeans uh, was written by uh, a woman named Lady um, Ethel Stefana Drower, who was married to uh, a British uh, diplomat, I want to say, uh, living in uh, Iraq, living in Mesopotamia when um, you know, British colonial powers were there. And she got to know this community and basically as an autodidact taught herself the language uh, with some help, but uh, learned their tradition, acquired uh, texts for the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Uh, so they have the biggest collection of Mandian texts anywhere in the world. It's known as the Drower Collection. It's named after her. And she studied the texts, learned the language, but also got to know the people, preserved some of their folk tales, wrote them down, and observed their rituals and recorded them in a true sort of anthropological spirit. And there's a sense in which, because the Mandaeans have some texts which seem to be very old, and they have a living tradition, we can do the textual work, we can do the anthropological work, we can compare notes between the two and see whether the rituals as mentioned in the text uh, match up with what they're doing today and those kinds of questions. And so given just how much there still is to be done, uh, all of this is part of um, a big picture, a big puzzle that uh, I think we can only put together if we work together. Hmm. That's very interesting because, I mean, obviously this is a very long-standing tradition. You, you kind of get to see, you know, what things are the same, what things have changed, and you know, in, a, in a way that you don't get with the ancient Gnostics. I mean, people think of the ancient Gnostics as kind of this static thing that, uh, you know, this monolithic, this, this is Gnosticism, but, it, you know, these things span hundreds of years, but we didn't get to see it, so we don't really mm -hmm. know what changed. And it's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, so let's, uh, let's jump around a bit. What do, what do the Mandaeans say about their origins, their creation story? Uh, their creation story uh, is uh, hard to talk about in the singular. <laughs> okay. uh, the Nag Hammadi texts give us collectively the impression that um, Gnostics were often happy to uh, be eclectic and draw on multiple traditions mm -hmm. and explore ideas and uh, tell more than one story. Uh, but within the Mandaean sacred texts themselves, we often have side-by-side -side diverse traditions, uh, oftentimes traditions that probably date from different time periods. But even when there doesn't seem to be a difference of date, uh, there are conflicting and contradictory accounts of a number of subjects, and among them is uh, creation. In some versions, we have something that closely, um, closely resembles the classic Gnostic account that many of your viewers might be familiar with. You start with a supreme god, uh, known as the Great First Light, or the King of Light who then has these emanations that emerge forth, and as you get further away, uh, problems intervene and chaos ensues and things go wrong, and that's how you explain the origin of the material world. Mm -hmm. And while there are some differences in terms of you know, who, who, who foots most of the blame for that coming about and things like that, it's still recognizable as the same basic tradition. But on the other hand, we also have uh, more dualistic versions in which uh, the light world beings look down into an already existing realm of dark waters and their reflections take on this distorted life of their own and become the forces of darkness and spark the forces of darkness 
uh, or the power of darkness in these dark waters into action and revolt and war with them. And so there are, there are diverse stories, and it's very interesting. They're, they're all recognizable as either um, Gnostic in character or uh, characteristic of Mesopotamian traditions like Zoroastrianism, which are dualistic in character, mm-hmm. with some cross-pollination between the two. Very and I think you had another question as well. Um, I can't remember what oh, it was. Uh, hey, uh, this is actually a, a good segue. So let's talk about their mythological origins. What... What are your? Uh, I, I should ask uh, if you could present uh, a few of the top theories for the the origins of, of the of the Mandeans of, of where they came from and where their beliefs came from and maybe what theory you favor. Uh, absolutely, uh, there are a wide array of theories about the origins of the Mandeans. Uh, some have considered them a syncretistic group with its origins in Mesopotamia. So they start out there and they just borrow from uh, Judaism, from Christianity, from Gnosticism, from Zoroastrianism and put it all together as a giant hodgepodge, and Mandaism is the result. Uh, right, so it's some, like it's, it's a baptizing sect there in Mesopotamia, and they the Gnostics come through, so they pick up a little bit from them. They have a Bible, so they pick up stories from there, or from the Quran. So that that's one theory, that they're sort of indigenous, an indigenous baptizing sect that's picking up bits and pieces. Yeah, and even, I mean, baptism, given that you have immersion rituals all the way from India, you know, along the Silk Road, mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, Palestine, um, and beyond, uh, even that could have been picked up uh, so, from some other group. But viewing them as basically syncretistic, but native to Mesopotamia is one option. Uh, some have suggested that they were once Christians, but in rejecting some form of Christianity that was being imposed, perhaps you know, Byzantine Orthodoxy, they actually rejected Jesus under that name and transferred the positive things that were previously said about him to other figures. Uh, so that might be you know, option two. Uh, some regard them as a Gnostic group which uh, essentially adopted John the Baptist very late in their history in response to the arrival of Islam uh, when they needed to show that they had a book and a prophet in order to be considered in the category of people of the book. Mm. And none of those is my own view. And so I'll mention one which I favor, and which is also uh, widely discussed, but not the only view among scholars. Uh, I think that in order to adequately explain Mandian origins, the best fit to the evidence is that in some form they existed in the region of uh, the Jordan River Valley and Jerusalem prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70. And my reason for saying that is not just the fact that they mentioned John the Baptist and Jesus. Uh, obviously, you can pick up those guys in all sorts of places. But they mention uh, Jordans as their term for baptismal water. They mention Jerusalem more frequently in um, texts like the Book of John, which is the one that I was involved in translating recently, uh, than it's, Jerusalem is mentioned more frequently than it is in the Babylonian Talmud. And I find that kind of interest in Jerusalem hard to explain if this is a group that is of Mesopotamian origin. And the Mandean texts actually blame the destruction of Jerusalem on the persecution of Mandeans by authorities in Jerusalem. And so I think that while they may not have originally been Gnostic, right, just as you know, if you go back to the roots of Christianity, many would, in fact, I think most would say that Jesus himself doesn't seem to have been a Gnostic, that Gnosticism is one form of Christianity that emerges out of a diverse um, Jesus movement. In the same way, they may have had some historic connection with uh, a baptismal movement, which John was also a part of, and become Gnostic in a later time, much as perhaps some forms of Christianity did. But one thing that's exciting about this view of their origins, if I'm right, and of course uh, I'm not always right, as I'm sure you could guess even without me telling you, but if this view of their origins is correct, then not only would that tell us something very interesting about Mandean origins, but the Mandeans might tell us something interesting about Gnostic origins, and that's mm-hmm. an exciting possibility, I think. Mm-hmm. And doesn't the uh, the their name uh, the Mandian and Mandianism doesn't that have a connection to to the terms Gnosis and Gnostic? Yes, absolutely. Uh, scholars debate everything, and this is one of those things. Um, 
a mandi is also the term that they use for the sort of cult hut that they build alongside the river for performing their rituals. But there is a root in Aramaic that means knowledge, and Mandean seems to come from that. And the way that a key light world figure who plays a key role in Mandaism, uh, Manda Dehey, uh, is usually translated as knowledge of life. And so if that's the correct way of understanding the term, then Mandaean basically means Gnostic. And so I'm sure you're aware that there are debates among scholars about the appropriateness of the term Gnostic, mm -hmm. and whether there are groups yes. that call themselves that. And so the Mandaeans may well be a clear example of a group that has these characteristics that are associated with the term Gnostic, but which also called themselves that. Well, that's interesting. <clears throat> um, so uh, I wanted to talk about those, uh, the, the baptism ritual a little bit. Um, you, you said you can look, look it up on YouTube. I'm definitely going to do that uh, eventually when I get home. But um, can you kind of describe what that ritual is like a little bit? Sure. And for those who are familiar with uh, baptism in Christianity, um, Christianity has a number of forms of baptism, of course. But you have to be Baptist or one of the other uh, more recent uh, Protestant groups to practice uh, full immersion. And even then, it's not usually practiced in a river. Uh, for the Mandeans, baptism has to take place uh, for it to be effective and properly done in what they call living water. In other words, running water. That's the Aramaic term for flowing water, right? It's living water. Uh, there's a pun on that in the Gospel of John in the New Testament. So. Some people may be familiar with it from there. And it's baptism by immersion. It involves um, a number of symbolic uh, elements, including um, drinking uh, some water. Uh, the, there's anointing with oil. There's um, twigs of myrtle and you know, special ceremonial garb that's worn uh, that's all white, uh, some of which we also find in Christianity. Mm -hmm. But for Mandaism, baptism is a repeated ritual. And it's something that one does seeking uh, forgiveness of sins and purification, right? That's one of the uh, central meanings of baptism. And the other is something that, again, is also a key meaning of water and immersion in water in a number of traditions all along the Silk Road. Right? You get it in India, you get it in other places. The idea that water ultimately stems from the world above. Right? It comes down from the heavens. Mm -hmm. And so... This flowing water, right, which hasn't had a chance to become stagnant and polluted in the material realm, connects you with that world, and so is the perfect setting for rituals which prepare one to ultimately return there uh, after one dies. And so those are the two real set, um, key sets of symbols um, or meanings that baptism has. Forgiveness of sins and um, directly in connection with that, uh, being forgiven so that one is preparing to ascend to that place where the water once descended from, uh, the light world, the world above, the heavenly realm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very Gnostic. We see that kind of thing in a, in a, lot, of, uh, a lot of traditions. In fact, a lot of people believe that the five seals ritual uh, referred to in, in some of the Sethian literature is, is some kind of a baptism, a repeated baptism tradition specifically for that reason. So. Yes, and there's been a lot of interesting uh, work. Well, no, there hasn't been a lot because there hasn't been a lot of anything <laughs> in relation to the Mandeans. Uh, but there has been some, uh, perhaps more than on some other subjects, there's been some interesting exploration of points of intersection between the Mandeans and Sethian tradition in particular because uh, there are a number of points of contact with their ideas, but also these mentions of rituals which are intriguing and elusive and hard to pin down in uh, the Coptic Gnostic texts, mm -hmm. but we see something that might be a lived parallel, maybe not the same thing, maybe not exactly what Sethians in Egypt did, but something which probably stems from a common tradition, a shared tradition. And so people who are interested in Sethianism should also be on YouTube looking at Mandaean baptism. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I will look some uh, some of those videos up, and I'll, I'll link a few down below um, in the in the show notes and everything for people to check out. I, I think that'll be that'll be very interesting to see. Uh, you mentioned um, you mentioned the the uh, the the figure of of John. Um, 
some people might know the Sethians as John Christians. Have you ever heard that term? Have you... Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and do, you, do you think that's, um, that's something that they apply to themselves later or other people apply to them rather later uh, in their tradition? Or is that something that they might have been thinking about from the very beginning? Yeah, that term, we can actually trace its origin pretty, uh, pretty clearly in their history. Uh, the moniker St. John Christian stemmed from the colonial era when Catholic missionaries encountered them, and they had already come across, uh, for instance, the St. Thomas Christians of mm -hmm. uh, southern India, and so when they encountered this group that had a baptismal ritual and had some points of commonality that were recognizable, they assumed that here, too, we have a group of Christians. Uh, they viewed them as heretical and they lost the true faith and so uh, they sought to get them back under the authority of Rome and to accept Catholic baptism and Catholic authority and things like that. And subsequently, these Catholic missionaries realized that, okay, I don't think we're dealing with Christians here at all. But by that stage, the name had stuck. And in fact, because there were colonial powers that were uh, Christian in affiliation, it sometimes suited the Mandaeans to seek the help of such powers and to present themselves as um, some kind of Christian. Mm -hmm. But if one assumes that in order to be a Christian, you have to like Jesus, <laughs> then really the Mandaeans don't fit that uh, label very well at all. Well, what other commonalities would the missionaries have seen uh, that they would have recognized? Uh, well, one thing that is noticeable when they carry out baptism is they have something called the drop show, which is uh, essentially a banner, but they drape the banner on a crossbeam, and the crossbeam is just there to support the banner. It's the banner that has the symbolism. But if you've ever been to a Christian church that uh, you know uh, does this sort of thing around Easter, you may have seen a cross with you know, essentially a you know like a a white or a purple mm -hmm. uh, robe, essentially, or you know. Um, Want to say scarf, but that's not the right word. But shawl, you know, so a piece of cloth draped across it. Um, it looks like Christian symbolism. Mm. Uh, the Mandaeans also have Sunday as their main sacred day when they meet and do things, and that's interesting too. It may be that there's some Christian influence there, but I think the most natural select, um, most natural explanation for that is that the Mandaeans may have emerged out of Judaism just as Christianity did. Mm -hmm. And if that's correct, and that would be my view, and can explain why, but if that's correct, then these are groups that probably would have um, kept a low profile and so gone to the synagogue together with others on the Sabbath, on Saturday. Mm -hmm. And so then on Sunday, everybody goes back to work and you squeeze in your meetings and sort of fly under the radar. Mm -hmm. um, my view is that the Mandaeans probably started as essentially a mystical group, um, a Gnostic group, which might have had something like the character of a, like a Masonic Lodge or something like that. It's a separate group that people go to, but who are part of another community. Mm -hmm. Their language is a dialect of Aramaic. It's written in a script which is used for the writing of Mandaean texts, so their sacred texts, and Mandaean um, amulets and magic bowls and things of that sort. And it has no secular usage whatsoever. And so one possibility is that we have a group whose origin is simply part of a wider Aramaic-speaking community and who had this secret esoteric tradition, which they wrote in a separate script, essentially to keep it secret and to um, also give it this uh, mystique uh, when used for magical purposes, because we know that uh, Mandaean um, magical bowls and amulets were uh, highly prized. Hmm. So, uh, this, uh, tell me a little bit about that, uh, these magical bowls and amulets. This is the first I'm hearing about those. Okay. Um, and these are the sort of thing that viewers should definitely Google too, because okay. a picture is worth a thousand words. Uh, and there are, there are displays of these things that um, museums and others have made available. But essentially... People have found these magical bowls uh, in excavations in Mesopotamia. That seems to be where they were most popular. And for the most part, they're written in the Aramaic square script that was used by Jews and in the Mandaic script. And it's hard to piece together exactly how these were used, 
Uh, one theory is that you'd essentially try to use the bowl to uh, trap a demon and so basically keep it from harming someone. Uh, but there are also curse bowls and things like that. And so another possibility is that people actually use these to drink out of and that the magical inscription on them, there's this spiral inscription sometimes with some illustration as well, uh, figures and things drawn on it. And basically it's a curse or spell that's written on it which seeks to accomplish something. And so we have a sense of what they were thought to do. We're just uh, a bit sketchy on the details of the ritual per se. Did they drink from the bowls? Did they uh, put them in a place to try to control a demon or an angel or keep a uh, some kind of magic, powerful being uh, under control for the purpose of re accomplishing something? That's very interesting. I'm looking at some of these pictures now. Um, if you Google virtual magic bowl archive, there's a, a bunch of you know, pages and pages of these bowls. Um, very interesting. Some of these figures look uh, similar to um, a text, uh, a book that I just read, the um, Macquarie Papyri, um, which is, a, I think, a 7th century, quote-unquote, Sethian magical text. And some of these figures look very similar to that. But who yeah. knows? Yeah, I'll have to... Um, one thing that there's a definite need for, uh, there's been some work, but not as much as is needed, uh, and that is... The Mandaeans have a distinctive form of art, which you can see in their scrolls. Mm. Uh, so their scrolls, uh, some of them are illustrated with these figures that have this kind of cubist mm -hmm. character to them. Uh, you can find pictures of these online, too, if you Google you know, Mandaean scrolls or something like that. Uh, you'll see examples of it. But there really is a need for you know, some comparative art history to explain what are some of the influences on it, what might be some examples of... Mandaean influence on other traditions, uh, because their their style of art might also help us to understand their religion better. Yeah, I'm googling uh, some of that uh, right now myself, and it's very very interesting art. There's there's just so many fascinating aspects about them. Uh, I'm surprised that, that not just scholars, but the general public isn't more interested in the in the Mandaeans. They seem to have uh, such a so many uh, hooks. You know, I know there's always so much interest in the world, and we live in a more secular society, and not everybody knows what Gnosticism is, but it's, uh, this is really fascinating stuff, particularly for a living tradition. Mm. Yeah. Oh, uh, that, that's actually a segue. So, James, you're, uh, you are a, a religious scholar and a biblical scholar, but mm. this is not your, your primary um, realm of study, right? You're, you're not a, a Mandaean scholar. Uh, how how did you how did you get interested in them and why why do you find them so fascinating? Yeah, and one thing I discovered, and I'll get back to this part of the story in a minute. But if you go to a conference on the Mandaeans, what you'll find is that uh, it's a very small group, and there are very few people. In fact, there's probably only one person in the world who really works, you know, primarily on the Mandaeans. For the most part. If you're a scholar of religion, if you're a linguist, if you're an art historian, uh, if you're an anthropologist, whatever you do, the Mandaeans don't experience such a degree of public interest that one can um, be hired as a scholar or teach courses as a scholar if that's all you do. Mm. Uh, but of course, I didn't know this first getting into it, so <laughs> I'll, I'll get there by way of my own story. Uh, I became interested in the Mandaeans through a series of fortuitous events, none of which on their own would in all likelihood have had the result of me working on a major research project on the topic, which is what I've just been doing. First, I did my own doctoral work on the Gospel of John, and if one works on the Gospel of John, one inevitably hears about the Mandaeans, mm -hmm. because there was interest in them among New Testament scholars on the basis of the possibility that they were descendants of followers of John the Baptist and thus might be in the background of the Gospel of John. That this might be the group that the author of the Gospel of John was arguing against. Hmm. Uh, when he says, John was not the light, right? Jesus was the light, uh, he sounds like he's really arguing against someone. And so maybe this was the background, right? Uh, my own research on John didn't focus there, but they came on to my radar, as it were, then. And they remained in the back of my mind until the time came when I was teaching at Butler University, where I am now, to develop a course on extra-canonical early Christian literature and Gnosticism. 
and looking for readings, I was reminded of the Mandeans, right? There's often an excerpt or two included in collections like, you know, the Gnostic Bible. And that's when I became acutely aware that although this group is unique in as much as it's still around and a living tradition, and so we can study their tradition in ways that we can't with the Coptic Gnostic sources, nonetheless, I could only give students certain excerpts because most Mandaean texts, including their two most important sacred texts, the Great Treasure and the Book of John, had never been translated into English in their entirety. Mm. Wow. And so I started dabbling and discovered that Christian Theological Seminary here in Indianapolis, right next to Butler University, has copies of a surprisingly large number of printed, published editions of Mandaean texts, books about the Mandaeans. I've never found out exactly why or how they ended up in that collection, but when I learned that there would be a conference on the Mandaeans in Oxford, I proposed a paper, thinking this is something I want to do some more on, and I went to that conference with some trepidation, uh, very conscious I was coming in as an outsider, and what I learned is that you can fit everyone who works on the Mandaeans from any angle in a single seminar room very easily, <laughs> and outsiders are welcome. I mean, at that conference, they must have mentioned a dozen or two dozen subjects, questions that essentially the sentiment was, it would be great if someone would work on this <laughs> and try and find an answer. And so at that conference, I met uh, Charles Heverell of Rutgers University, as well as uh, a large number of other scholars. But uh, he and I put together a grant proposal to see if the NEH would fund a project to translate, uh, to allow us to translate the Mandian Book of John. And we got that grant and have uh, finished the translation and have just been finishing up work on a commentary and are hoping to submit those to a publisher in the summer. Well, that's great. Keep us posted and we'll, uh, we'll definitely put links to that when it's ready. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> so, <laughs> what was that? Uh, what was that first conference like? What what, what kind of subjects did they discuss at that? Uh, that was where I found out that you know, there is one art historian who looks at their illustrated manuscripts. Mm -hmm. uh, I met the uh, matriarch of Mandaean studies, uh, Yoran Buckley, who is the one person who really does Mandaism as her main thing. Uh, there are linguists who are interested in Mandaic as a dialect of Aramaic. Mm -hmm. uh, there are people who are interested in their current uh, refugee situation in many parts of the world and the humanitarian crisis connected with them. And so there were all these different angles. And so even though I was coming in from the perspective of New Testament studies, uh, by doing some comparative work and drawing on my strengths, I was able to contribute things that were genuinely helpful and I learned a great deal. Uh, but even those who are working on the Mandaeans are doing so from a wide array of different perspectives and are focusing on a wide array of different things. And so progress is very slow, uh, but it's happening and it seems that it's slowly but surely increasing and there is increasing interest. But I remember you asked me earlier why they're not better known and um, I think it's it's something that actually, you know, interest in the Mandaeans has waned, if anything, and only now is starting to make something of a resurgence. Uh, I'm not sure how many of your uh, listeners would be aware of this, but the truth is that, you know, we've known about them for hundreds of years, since the colonial era. Mm -hmm. Europeans have been aware that this group was there. And the great treasure, which I've mentioned already, is a key Mandaean text. It was translated into Latin in 1815, and that helped spark off the Theosophical movement. Mm. So uh, European esotericism was influenced by a Mandaean text. Uh, New Testament study, in German at least, in the middle of the 20th century, there was a lot of discussion of the Mandaeans. And so I think what happened is that, for the most part, people have been interested in the Mandaeans in connection with other things. And now that we've had the discovery of the Nag Hammadi sources, and so we know things about not just Gnosticism secondhand, but the Gnostics themselves in their own words mm -hmm. from ancient times. Now is the best time for anyone ever to revisit the Mandaeans. And that's why I'm excited to be working in the field. And I'm hoping that uh, others will uh, catch the bug and will join in the process because the last time the Mandaean texts were translated into English or into German, we didn't have the Nag Hammadi sources mm -hmm. for comparison. So almost everything that we now know about Gnosticism, we didn't know then. And so the time is right for 
uh, going back to look at these things. Uh, of course, it would help if you know maybe the Mandeans get mentioned. I think uh, a Mandean amulet gets mentioned on an episode of Supernatural, but that's not really enough to <laughs> bump them into the public consciousness. And so I think we need we need some kind of popular book um, to bridge into scholarship and. I have a, I have a book idea in mind, so if if anything ever comes of that, I will uh, let you know and maybe come back on the show and talk some more about it. Oh yeah, that'd Please. be great. Yeah, the problem with some of those um, like supernatural and shows like that is you never really know what they make up and what they're pulling from mm -hmm. actual yeah. history books. So. <laughs> yeah, we'll also we'll, we'll send out a plea to Dan Brown to include uh, <laughs> his next uh, his next thriller. That'll do it. Um, he lives around well, around me somewhere. Yeah, it would get people's attention, but whether it would be good attention, useful attention, <laughs> accurate attention is another question. J James, uh, and I know this, uh, uh, the answer might be uh, uh, it hasn't been studied enough. So, so obviously there there is a lot of connections between the the, the classical Gnostics, the Stephians, Valentinians, the texts that are in the Nag Hammadi, and uh, 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 the Mandaeans. Um, is is there intertextuality between their holy scriptures and the the NHL, uh, or does it seem to come from shared traditions and oral traditions? Can, can we open up some of the texts found in Dog Hammadi and open up some of the the Mandian holy books and be like, oh, okay, well, they obviously read this, or they're quoting this, or this phrase is an awful lot like this. It couldn't have come through the oral tradition. They're, these texts are related. Uh, that's a great question. I don't think there's anything in there that requires direct textual knowledge. Uh, the truth is that there are Mandaean texts which haven't even been published um, you know, in terms of the Mandaean text itself, never mind in a translation. And so there may be things which we'll find when we yeah. uh, get, some of, get into some of those sources. Uh, in terms of the Nag Hammadi texts and the Mandaean texts, there is nothing that I've come across that strikes me as a direct quote, mm -hmm. but there are some intersections, particularly with Sethianism, uh, with the ideas, uh, sort of the process whereby, uh, according to one version of the tradition at any rate, um, the material cosmos comes into existence, uh, the view of salvation, some of the rituals, and so there is, there does definitely seem to be a shared tradition uh, going back before the Sethian texts we have on the one hand and the Mandaean texts we have on the other. There is some clearer evidence of influence of the Mandaeans on subsequent traditions, in particular the Manichaeans. The Coptic uh, Psalms of Thomas seem to quote directly from Mandaean sources. Oh, mm -hmm. really? We, we actually yeah. did the Manichaeans last week, so this is fairly timing. Yeah, and there, there has been some debate about it, as with everything among scholars, but if the Coptic Psalms of Thomas come from Thomas, who was one of the actual disciples of uh, Mani himself, then that gives us a firm anchor for uh, the Mandaean tradition going back to that time, you know, around the third century, which wow. is when Joran Buckley dates their, uh, the earliest versions of some of their texts based on uh, scribal colophons, which basically means lineages of scribes, each of whom added their name to the mm -hmm. text when they copied it. And so we see in the um, Coptic Manichaean sources some clear evidence of borrowing. And I say it's clear evidence because there are mentions of figures, there are things which are essentially lifted right out of Mandaism and which are not mentioned elsewhere in Manichaeism. And so it's, it's basically one of those cases where uh, it's it's odd in the Manichaean tradition, but well, except for the fact that Manichaeism draws on anything it comes across, you know, from Buddhism through Christianity, you know. Uh, but those figures, those names, are central to Mandaism, and so it seems clear that the direction of influence is from Mandaism to Manichaeism, and not vice versa. Hmm. What's uh, what parallels can you draw between Buddhism and Mandaeism? Uh, well, I was mentioning Buddhism in connection with um, uh, the Manichaeans. Oh, okay. I know that there's some explicit mention there. Uh, but it certainly would be worth exploring the question of whether immersion, you know, uh, how does this travel along the Silk Road? Uh, I've hinted at this before. Mm -hmm. uh, if one goes to India, one sees rituals which are not unlike baptism. Mm -hmm. And so the question of 
you know, where this exchange takes place and how broad this shared tradition is and who influenced whom um, is an interesting one. And I mean, certainly, you know, Buddhism shares with uh, the Gnostics the view that you know the material world is not you know where our focus should be. That there's something beyond it. Mm -hmm. uh, but in other ways, it's very different. Uh, they intersect on some science fiction in interesting ways, though. You get this sort of Gnostic slash Buddhist thing going on in the, the Matrix films and mm -hmm. elsewhere. Well, yeah. Um, speaking of that, uh, this might uh, this might come off as a bit heretical, also. But I've never watched very many of the original or the older runs of Doctor Who. Uh, and, uh, and I was told to ask you very specifically about uh, Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy's uh, turns as, uh, as the Doctor. Um, were they underrated in any way? Okay, well, um, before, before I answer that question, let me just do something really quickly. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, that's very important. <laughs> so for those of you who are Patreon subscribers, you're going to get this. Everybody else should, you know, pledge a dollar. And yeah, let's see. I should go around one more time. Oh, it just keeps going. Get it. So it keeps going. <laughs> um, it actually does. I've got the short end here, but it goes on and on. Nice. Uh, Jeffrey Kupperman would like that. Uh, actually, <laughs> she she, did, she she knew I wanted one, but uh, it took a while till she was really persuaded that I would actually wear it. And so it's been pretty cold here, and I've been uh, wearing my Doctor uh, scarf. Great. Uh, but when it comes to this question that you just asked me about, you know, underrated doctors from the classic. Uh, series, I would say yes. Yeah. Uh, in particular, Colin Baker, right? Uh, he's a lot of people's least favorite doctor, and I think that's really undeserved. If you rewatch his episodes, right, his behavior right after the regeneration is well, it's admittedly somewhat more erratic than the other doctors, but the doctor is often erratic on Doctor Who after he regenerates. Mm -hmm. But Colin Baker is the doctor that seems to me to channel the most of the original personality of the doctor. A lot of people haven't been watching the show long enough, who watch it now, to remember that the first doctor, the original character, was this grumpy yeah. old man. Yeah, he was cranky. <laughs> he was cranky. Uh, he was irritable. And you know, he was often sharp with his companions. Mm -hmm. And Colin Baker channeled that in a way that really felt authentic uh, to extent that you know, Tom Baker could be grumpy a little bit, but you know he was also really comical in a lot of ways, and so he didn't have that that you know grumpy old man persona. Um, you know, Colin Baker did that, and then in turn there are elements of Colin Baker's Doctor that I think have clearly influenced the newer series. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I could envisage Matt Smith or Peter Capaldi giving the speeches that Colin Baker gives in Trial of a Time Lord, uh, calling the Vale Yard by a variety of names and. Hmm. There, there's something of that grumpy character, you know, that irritableness that I think got toned down because they were concerned they overdid it with the first Doctor, but which, you know, they've tried to give the Doctor back a little bit of an edge. Yeah. Uh, and some might think that with Peter Capaldi they went a little too far in some <laughs> of the early episodes. But, yeah, I mean, there's, there's something of that that I think has been rediscovered very recently on the show. Uh, Sylvester McCoy's episodes are sometimes a bit cheesy, and you know, some of, there there are some issues with that era. But they introduced this concept, right? They called it the Cartmel Master Plan after you know Andrew Cartmel, who was the uh, the producer who was um, coming up with the idea. But that they were going to give the Doctor back uh, more of his mystery. Mm -hmm. Originally, the show was Doctor Who, and it was like, who is this guy? Right. And eventually, they felt like, okay, we've got to give you know, we'll tell about his plan, and we'll give some of his past. And so he lost some of that mystery. You knew who he was. You knew where he was from. You knew he was an alien. And they tried to give that back by uh, developing this idea that the Doctor might have been one of the original Time Lords from way, way back in Gallifrey's past. Mm -hmm. And some of that, too, that mis attempt to give back the mystery by suggesting that there are things we still don't know about his history, which, if people knew them, um, it would totally change the way we think about him. Uh, they've tried to add that back to the show a little bit in the, the series subsequent to the, the long uh, gap in mm -hmm. that preceded uh, Christopher Eccleston. Yeah, I find that every time that um, every time we learn a little bit more about the Doctor's past in this you know this updated run that um, 
yeah, there's some mystery about it at first, but then at the end of the day, I'm always kind of like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I don't feel like I don't feel like it's as well. I mean, obviously, as a you know person who feels responsible for the deaths of billions and billions of beings, you know, that's that's pretty dark and mysterious. But you know, they're not really dead. They're in a pocket universe, or whatever. I don't know. It's very confusing. <laughs> it has gotten a little confusing, and it's been interesting. I, I actually read a, a conference paper, and they're I've been working on a, a book that will touch on this as well on theology and science fiction, and so. Uh, you can actually do some interesting things comparing uh, canon as a concept in Christianity on the one hand and in science fiction on the other. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the whole notion of, you know, ongoing revelation and how fans, either of the Bible or of Doctor Who, find these very creative ways to say, no, no, there really aren't any contradictions. Right. When in fact you're dealing with texts written by different people over a very long period of time, and the simple solution sometimes is the right one, that... It's it's hard to be consistent over stretches of time and yeah. different authors and things of that sort. Well, one description I I really like of the of the Gnostic scriptures as you know taken as a whole is you know a lot of times they're you know fan fiction they're stories mm -hmm. of of these characters that people like to talk about but they don't know as much about as maybe they'd like to so they kind of just expand on the the mythos as it were and and I think that's a really good description of what's happening in a lot of these cases. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about the Matrix for a minute, because uh, I take it that you're uh, you're a fan of the Matrix. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we talk a lot about the Matrix here. Uh, it's it's one of our favorite modern Gnostic stories. So, uh, what's your interest in it, and, and how does it relate to some of the other things you do? Uh, well, my blog is called Exploring Our Matrix, precisely because uh, after I came to Butler University, I came here as a biblical studies person, but they were happy for me to explore side interests, and so I started reigniting my passion for science fiction and eventually ended up teaching on it and writing on it as a scholarly interest. And the uh, one of the Matrix movies had just come out at that stage and so uh, I ended up, I probably, I was blogging for, you know, I was blogging early enough that I probably could have snatched up like the Bible blog or something like that. Um, <laughs> but I called it Exploring Our Matrix because that worked for, you know, exploring you know, the context of early Christianity, exploring mm -hmm. every issue, you know, doing the sci-fi thing. But the Matrix is very interesting for anyone who is interested in religion, because on the one hand, there is interesting use of uh, religious imagery and religious ideas, but there are also subversive things that are done with it. Mm -hmm. uh, the connections with Gnosticism, uh, I suspect you've talked about before on the show, um, the material world is a prison, right? The world that we perceive ourselves to be in is a prison. It's not what's ultimately real. It's not where you want to be. Uh, it's possible to escape from it, but there are these beings who come from a higher realm that uh, are trying to stop you. And there's an architect, right? I mean, the mm -hmm. character of the architect is basically the demiurge, yep. right? Yep. Uh, and so we have, you know, we have a lot of figures that are familiar even if they have different names. But then you, uh, I mean, one other thing that's common to, you know, with, between the Matrix and Gnosticism is this idea that there's this human that is, you know, this celestial being that ultimately is greater than the god that has you enslaved in the material world, mm -hmm. right? And so this elevation of humanity and so humans are the creators of the artificial intelligence that the matrix, which enslaves humanity. You know, we're we're before them, and you know, their origin, as it were, rather than them being our origin. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, the world that you escape to in the matrix is not a celestial paradise. No, no, uh, it's it's a mess, and so there's a subversive element that's fascinating as well. Yeah, yeah, we we talk about that a lot because the, you know, often a, a kind of Gnostic experience leads you to an understanding <coughs> of kind of the reality of a world that is not as pleasant as you thought it might be. You know, it's not all, you know, like when you wake up in that stupid pod thing in the in the Matrix. You know, you, it's kind of out of the frying pan and into the fire for a little while until you kind of learn to navigate the whole thing. It's a great story. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Sorry, I was going to say, when you finish your, your book on religion and science fiction or the Bible and science fiction, you'll have to let us know so that we can have you back on. Because yeah. it's, um, uh, if you're making comparisons between the two, I'm sure it's something that a, a lot of our listeners would be interested in. 
Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, I'm, I'm already expecting to be back on the show more than once then at some point in the future, because between the science fiction stuff uh, and further work on the Mandaeans, mm-hmm. we, we've got a lot to talk about. We sure do. <laughs> I should also clarify for, for listeners who don't have video, James is, is wearing a very impressive Doctor Who scarf. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, a fourth, fourth Doctor uh, Doctor Who scarf, that's uh, really kick-ass, and uh, <laughs> probably quite appropriate for uh, the, the winter uh, that he's having right now. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's it's not too bad here, knock on wood, so far. But anyway, uh, that's, a, that's a great place to wrap it up. Um, and uh, thank you, James McGrath from Butler University for having uh, such a great conversation and uh, geeking out a little bit with us about religion and science fiction. We, we really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on the show again. It's been great chatting with you. All right, and uh, we'll put your links and relevant stuff in the description, so if you're listening along the podcast, just check the description of the podcast and you'll see all of that stuff there. And, uh, you know, anything else you want to bring up, Jonathan, before we close out? Uh, I, I think that's it. All right, fantastic. So, uh, for those of you who are listening along at home, uh, we will see you next week, but also don't forget to uh, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash gnostic where you can uh, support us and help us make new and better programming and you can see uh, fabulous Doctor Who scarves uh, that you can't see on the podcast so that's uh, something to look forward to anyway uh, for everybody listening along at home we'll see you next week of the Gnostic Wisdom Network. For more information about this and all of GWN's programming, please visit GnosticWisdom.net. The opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of GWN, the Apostolic Joannite Church, or any other organization. This has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License and is brought to you by the generous support of our patrons. To support our programs and become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash gnostic. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash G-N-O-S-T-I-C. 